This is the Nomad Futurist Podcast, a podcast about the evolution of technology, society, and transformation. Connect with us, share your thoughts with us at nomadfuturist.com. Let's get this started. Here are Phil and Nabil. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Nomad Futurist. This is your co-host Nabil Mahmood from Kona, Hawaii. And this is your co-host Philip Koblenz from Montclair, New Jersey. This is Michael King from Berkeley, California. Michael, thank you very much for joining us today. Let's start to get to know you a little bit. Who are you? What do you do? Who am I? That's really philosophical for a first question, but I'm the head of data center strategy for Cloudflare. Uh, Cloudflare is a security performance and reliability software as a service company that sits in front of a material part of the internet today, providing a few things. One of them, which we're very well known for is content delivery. We are present in 250 metros, delivering content close to end users everywhere and helping make the internet better through that. We are securing large parts of the internet. We have a large network that absorbs many DDoS attacks and and things of that nature. So that's a, a big part of helping make the internet better. And we are also starting to get into things like securing corporate networks, providing sort of uh, consistent security posture across different kinds of devices within the enterprise. And I'll say this for the third time because it is our mission statement to help make the internet better. So that's what Cloudflare does. For me, I leading all of our efforts in the data center sector to strategize about where we deploy, who we deploy with in the data center world, who we're buying data center space and power from just kind of be a little bit of an uh, gigantic air quote expert on the whole data center ecosystem globally. I have a team of regional subject matter experts and commercial folks that help me out with that. So yeah, really excited to be here, guys. Thanks for having me. Uh, and just to clarify, is 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 Cloudflare's purpose to make the internet better or, or worse? I didn't catch that. Help. 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 Okay. help. You're not going to make it. You're going to help other people. Correct. We are fundamentally helping make the internet better. Not we are not the, ourselves making it better. That, that's a really important nuance. Which you know, if you listen to our management team, you know, appear on CNBC or other sort of venues, they they're they're at pains to make clear that this is not a a one company lift. This is sort of a rising tide floats all boats. How long have you been in the technology business? Well, the business part, I guess, is, you know, my whole career, basically almost 20 years. I mean, really, the the technology piece for me goes back much further than that. My parents, when I was born, were both teachers, but my dad was a math and computer science teacher. So he kind of, you know, had, and this is, you know, early 80s, you know, he was doing TRS-80, you know, programming courses and things like that. And he eventually partly that into working for an ed tech company, which kind of moved him through the technology space through, you know, customer service and deployment to more of kind of a CIO thing. So long story short, I had computers in the house from minute zero, which is unusual for somebody in the eighties. And they weren't like, you know, wasn't like an Atari 800 to play video games. It was, you know, here's a, literally a business computer that in the early eighties was capable of, you know, internal email. And here's a you know, dad's got a CompuServe subscription and here is a 286 sitting on your desk to play, you know, play computer games. I never had a Nintendo. I had a 286 and was playing like Escape from Monkey Island and stuff, right? It, 
that kind of thing. And then really having to take care of the technology as well. You, you didn't just have out of the box solutions back then, which I know is a little bit difficult for folks these days to understand. You really had to understand how it worked, put it together, maintain it, do really gnarly things like upgrade MS-DOS. Like you had to do all of the stuff that people now just kind of take for granted because we've spent, you know, 30 plus years making it seamless as a technology industry. So I kind of got into the guts that way. My degrees in German studies, like I did liberal arts, like I'm, I'm not an engineer, but I come from an era where you didn't have to be an engineer to really need to understand how that stuff all worked. So an early, early exposure basically led you to, to technology. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's a very nice way of summarizing my long this there. Yeah. So why did you end up picking uh, Germans? Candidly, it was the easiest way to go study abroad. But more than that, you know, in retrospect, I was about, I guess I was about nine or 10 when the ball fell. And that was right around the time that I was asked to choose a language to study in going into middle school. And German was one of the options. And I kind of thought, well, this is an interesting sort of choice. And that makes it sounds very intellectual for a nine-year-old, but like my adult interpretation of my nine-year-old brain is that it sounded interesting because it was topical and that kind of led me to studying away. And that led me to spending 10 years of my career in Switzerland working. So it kind of all worked out. My, my wife is German. I met her over there. So there's a, there's a, in retrospect, looks like a very good plan at work, which was completely fly by the seat of the pants always. So. Well, you chose the right, you chose, you chose the correct side of the wall. So I guess that's cool. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Well, Switzerland is neutral. So, you know, just think of Switzerland as historically having been basically like wall around it in the middle. I feel like I, I lived in Switzerland in a time that was very, you know, mild compared to, you know, I, I imagine Switzerland in the sixties being just a hive of spies and all kinds of chicanery and kind of sad I missed it, but oh well. I think there's something very high-minded about even starting a sentence with, I lived in Switzerland when something that it just, just sounds very fancy. Love it. It is. It is indeed. All right. So then you started your career after you got done with college and German studies. How did you end up transitioning into technology as a career? Well, honestly, I didn't want to be a German teacher. And that's really the only thing that like, I mean, the only thing directly related to German that you can do. Yeah. I mean, you can, you can do like the kind of generalized stuff that a lot of my buddies did right out of college. Like, Hey, start your career as a paralegal in New York because I was living in New York right after college. And, or you could go do, you know, editorial assistant in a publishing house. Like there's all these sort of career starting activities you can do in New York as a young post-grad and or young, you know, person with a BA from some college, uh, somewhere, but. I had gotten into kind of desktop support during college. So working at the student help desk. So after like, I mean, the first job was a little bit less to do with that, but the, the second job was desktop support and executive desktop support. So like demanding sort of people who needed somebody who was both kind of willing to satisfy, you know, unusual technology requests and who was not kind of Nick Burns company computer guy. Now, arguably unsuccessful on both of those counts was I, but at least I was able to convince them coming in that that was possible. So I kind of started doing that. And again, that's all about hands-on putting stuff together, understanding how stuff works. 90% of the time, like 
desktop support issues are trivial. And the other 10% of the time you have Google, like that's basically how desktop support works. And if something's really gnarly, I was working for a 50,000 person corporation with lots of air level specialists and you just kind of wrote them in. So it's an excellent way to get started in tech. It's a really great way to get burnt out in tech too. So the important thing, if you do desktop support is unless you want to do it forever and you love it. And you know, if you do that, please um, apply for every tech support job because every company would love to have you. The important thing is to figure out how you can transition out of desktop support into something. If you, if you, if you love it, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> well, I, you know, I respect people who love it. I just don't know any of them. Could you, could you expand a little bit just on that transition from desktop support to where you're at in your career in a leadership role? Sure. So from desktop support, I had built a team in Switzerland of, and I had become an IT manager basically through a series of corporate expansions and people leaving and things like that. So I kind of had a few lucky breaks there, I guess. And then, and the reason I had was able to do this in Switzerland in the first place was because of my German studies degree, like I never would have gotten that job in Switzerland without speaking German. The person they had there at the time did not speak German and I was already in the company doing something else. So that, that kind of facilitated transition quite a lot. To get out of IT management, first I built a team to basically take over much of my responsibility. And I found people, honestly, who were better than me at that, that helped. And then the second thing was really a lot of trying to internally network to see what was out there in the technology world within this company. Because I, at that time, was a little bit more, you know, with the visa situation in Switzerland, I was a little more tied to the company that, you know, you would be in a open employment market, United States, where you're a citizen. So I was trying to figure out what I could do from there still. I had only met my wife like a couple of years before. We weren't quite ready to like gallivant off to another country yet. So what can I do? And basically just internally network, talk to as many people as I could. Most of those conversations didn't really bear fruit because again, I'm not an engineer. Like when you deal with technology people, you're kind of like, okay. And if, especially in a 50,000 person operation, you're dealing with a lot of specialism. So like, Hey, talk to the database guy. Hey, talk to the network guy. Hey, talk to the, you know, the platform guy. Those are not really options if you're not a specialist. So you, then you got, okay, t- talk to the pro- project management people. Well, I'm a tiny bit too ADD for project management. So that didn't seem all that appealing. Although I did have some conversations that way. Talk to the data center people. Well, it turns out that I know this in retrospect, but I didn't really know this at the time that a data center is basically just a massive living technology organism that you have to like touch all the time. It's like a gigantic desktop computer from the 1980s. You're, you have to upgrade it. You have to pull stuff out. You have to put stuff in. It is tangible technology in a way that I could really relate to, but on such a more massive scale that I think it was instantly interesting to me how to get involved in that sector. And I was fortunate to have a mentor at the time who I had met who was willing to kind of suspend disbelief on the fact that I had never worked in the data center before. I had built like a comms room as a part of my IT manager job. So like I at least had seen a rack and a raised floor and put some servers in it, but like really very little experience. And, and shout out to Mark, if he ends up listening to this, really hugely influential on my career, that he was willing to take a chance on kind of generalized, this guy seems like he might be able to learn type experience. I think actually to Cloudflare's credit, they're very good at finding people who they think have learning potentiality and putting them in position to learn. 
but a 50,000 person corporation that is much more legacy in terms of tech and in terms of sort of hiring practice, that was unusual at the time. So really grateful for that opportunity. And basically I came in at a time that that corporation was assimilating some acquisition data centers, trying to come up with a strategy for consolidation and disposal. And really nobody knew that much on the acquirees or the acquirer side about what the acquiree had. So I was able to get in on the ground floor of information collection, really understand the lay of the land, touch a ton of colos because there were a ton of sub acquisitions and really get my hands dirty and learning how all this stuff worked and help create, you know, strategy for consolidation and, and closure. Tremendous learning experience. Tremendous. I was able to work with a guy who was a longtime consultant for McKinsey. So learn about kind of the consultative aspects of all of this. I was able to, you know, work with people who had spent, you know, cradle to grave experience in data centers. I was able to work with, you know, more of a property and commercial type people and learn from them. So tremendous learning experience. But then is the next question. What happens after that? How do you get from working at a 50,000 person corporation in Switzerland to working for Cloudflare in California? Well, the answer is I, I did a gap year. I basically said, okay, I've done all I can in this role in this company. And I went traveling. My wife and I bought a 1994 Toyota Land Cruiser, outfitted it for overland. And we drove from Minnesota to Panama over the course of nine months, stopping in all the places on the way, you know, spending time in, especially in Mexico and Guatemala, but also pretty much every country, but Honduras, where we kind of drove through, we spent at least two weeks and, you know, it, it really seems very innocent now in the year two of the pandemic here, just kind of checking it out, absorbing it and trying to figure out what we wanted to do with our lives, really honestly, because we had both had corporate jobs and, you know, to a greater or lesser degree, well compensated and, you know, somewhat fulfilling in certain aspects, but was this what we wanted to do with the rest of our career or not? Then we went back and my wife kind of took the lead for a while on where we were going to work next. Back in Switzerland, then we moved to Canada for a while. And then I got this opportunity at Cloudflare to kind of rejoin the data center ecosystem. Hopped on that and it's been kind of a, um, just strapped to a racket since then. You know, you touched on uh, a number of different things that I think are just so acutely important that, that, that I think we should highlight them. One is this notion of, you know, following what, I mean, maybe the word passion is overstating it, but following something that you did, not in necessarily your formalized schooling, but following, you know, what I guess was, let's call it a hobby as you were growing up, you know, interacting with computers and really following that desire through college and, and, and all that. How much do you think you know, the, 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 the fact that, you know, it was, it was more of a kind of subliminal element to what you were doing was, was important in, in your kind of enjoyment of, let's say, desktop support and then into the, the underlying data center. Like the fact that it wasn't formally taught to you in a kind of rigorous, methodical way, and you were able to learn through exposure based. How much is that? How much was that impact? I would say that one of the crucial things about being in technology for me is the ability to learn on a daily basis. I think there's very few fields that keep throwing stuff at you so quickly. And that's not to say that I'm a, a technology generalist that understands enough about everything to really do the full bandwidth of learning that's available to you. Some people are, and I really respect that. But what I like about what it is I do is that you're kind of thinking about 
the globe worth of geography at any given time. You're thinking about various things happening in various territories. And as you probably inferred, I'm a bit of a, a travel person. So thinking about things globally and locally at the same time is interesting and kind of overlays to the travel. But I think one of the interesting questions in retrospect is that there, there is no education path for what I ended up doing. Like there's no internet infrastructure education path that I'm aware of, or at least there wasn't at the time that I needed to sort of make decisions about what to do. And so you're kind of left with this classic American experience of what's the, you know, what's the university that I want to go to and then let me figure it out, which is not how, by the way, how much of the rest of the world does it. Like America has this built in, I think, pro and con inefficiency in what you, when you decide what you want to do and how you decide it. And they don't have a lot of, you know, options for internet infrastructure. So you do kind of have to pick that up along the way somewhere, or you have to be, you know, you have to do the classic engineering thing and get into it that way. But even if they did have it, I mean, we touched on this a lot in podcasts, like the the fact that there hasn't been since the like industrial revolution hasn't really been a a big change in the way our educational structure in 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 the country. And it's just not focused on making well-rounded humans that can, you know, kind of figure out where their passions are and figure out how they want to make an impact on the planet in the way that, you know, it, it really should, at least in, in, in my opinion. And I think just this, this notion of if somebody asks me what I do for a living, though, my first answer is not like I'm a computer guy or I run these data centers. I'm a problem solver. I mean, that's, that's really all I'm doing is trying to find unique ways in this world that I, I've, I've gotten involved in to solve problems that are going to come at you in all these these inter- interesting ways. And the solutions to those problems really aren't necessarily borne out from specific subject matter I, I learned in engineering school, but from the experience that I've had, you know, in life, whether in the data center or not in the data center or, or what have you. So it's 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 interesting that, you know, your path is, is almost a, a perfect example of how you know, you can, the fact that you're well-rounded and you're, you're, you can find these different ways to kind of, you know, fulfill your life leads you to a, a an area where you can, you know, make, make the most impact and, and, you know, enjoy what you do. Yeah. I think it's interesting because also the classic liberal arts education is supposed to make you well-rounded. It's supposed to teach you how to write. It's supposed to teach you how to think critically. All of those are really super important skills in the technology space. And one of the reasons going back to that critical opportunity where I first got into data centers. One of the reasons I was able to get that opportunity was that the guy, Mark, who hired me was looking for people who were not like engineering brain people and no disrespect to engineering brain people, but like there's a certain type of engineering thinking that is extremely crucial in technology. There's also a disruptor kind of thinking who doesn't come in with that type of experience and brain who's asking what might seem like off the wall questions or more sort of generalized critical thinking questions. And that's what he wanted on his team with me. Like you can learn the technology stuff, but I can't teach you this long educational path that leads you to be a good critical thinker. Like those are, those are things that regardless of, you know, what you decide on an educational path for, or what you're trying to do, what you start out in your career trying to do, which will probably change two or three times over the course of your career if you're lucky, you can always 
concentrate your education on learning how to write, learning how to think. Like those are, those are portable skills. They're portable skills that will get you in the door in opportunities that you probably wouldn't otherwise get. I think those are super crucial things that everybody can, can concentrate on regardless of educational path. Yeah, I believe, I mean, you, you've actually hit uh, the nail on the head a couple of times over here with, you know, none of us actually in here, I think besides Phil <laughs> started in the data center business. We just ended up in the data center business through trials and tribulations. And uh, I'm not sure you can consider where I started in the data center business. Well, you were born in the data center business. I started in, I, there was a computer in front of me and I just went towards it. And then eventually it turned into it is. Michael, <laughs> how, how do you keep up with change? The, the constant evolution of technology and the constant change. How do you stay up to date? Oh, that's a good question. One could argue that I kind of dodge it a little bit by being in this data center space, which is, I would say, more change resistant than, than a lot of technology industries. But honestly, one of the benefits to working with the folks that I do at Bifler is that, you know, and going back to the, I love to learn regularly sort of thing. I have all of these folks around me who are subject matter experts and, you know, much more experienced with me in like these deep technical subjects. So how to keep up with stuff is honestly, sometimes as easy as finding an opportunity, a company that's really at the forefront of things and just keeping your eyes and ears open and absorbing all that, that to me, I haven't found a better way of keeping up with stuff than just being in the jumping in the pool and swimming. I'd love to say that I keep up, you know, the, I'd love to say I keep up with things by watching Ted talks or something, but that's not me. And the irony of me saying, I don't watch people's Ted talks while I'm recording a podcast is so full credit to anybody who chooses not to listen and says, I'm just going to go work for a good company and learn that way. That's fine. If you listen to this podcast backwards, there's all sorts of hidden messages here. So I suggest Paul is dead. Yeah. I, I would say to me, like the, and this goes back to sort of my choice of education as well, like putting yourself in an environment where you are maybe on the lower end of knowledge and you have to work to keep up is a really great motivator to learn and keep up. And I would say, especially when I compare myself to like some of my colleagues, like Nitin, Tom and others who, you know, like those guys know so much. And if I can capture just a little bit of that and learn from them, that's how I keep up. Like but that, you can catch the things that they're forgetting. If you catch the things that they're forgetting, it's still, it's still plenty of <laughs> right. Well, and if I can contribute to that knowledge by being more right. of a subject matter expert in the thing that I'm supposed to be, that's great. But like, honestly, just kind of learning how inter internet infrastructure is built after coming from a large enterprise, it's been such a privilege. So I have something that I think you probably saw. Someone that we all know started this on social media, this, uh, this notion of, you know, like this, 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 different take on when people that are coming into our space as just like, and go straight to the clack. Like they don't necessarily take the time, you know, they don't understand how computers work or the underlying infrastructure. They don't have a life of experience that, that you or I or, or Nabil has had as the fundamental kind of foundation of their knowledge in the space. And, you know, people like me have always said that it's important to understand, have a, have a foundation in you know, how the entire environment works, how computers work instead of just, or why they work instead of how they work, like the underlying foundation of it. And he used a, an example of like somebody working on a Tesla doesn't need uh, to know how a combustion engine works in order to, uh, in, in order to work on, uh, on a Tesla. So you can kind of, you know, skip that entire genre of car 
And in my mind, I'm thinking, but you do need to know how a car works in order to work on a Tesla. So do you have a, a, a thought on, on, you know, whether it's important to have that kind of foundational knowledge to be like fully well-rounded and be successful? Or, you know, I, obviously you're talking about subject matter experts, so you can just skip and become like a cloud subject, subject matter expert on the software side of things. But isn't it important to know how on the back end all that stuff is, is interacting? Yeah, there's a couple of points that I would make about that. The first one is that, I mean, fundamentally, you, that is true. And I work on cars, so I'm acutely tuned to this. Like, you, you don't need to know how a combustion engine works to understand how a Tesla works. But I would take a step back from that and say that the the reason why people go straight to cloud, it's not a, I would say it's less about wanting to skip over than that knowledge and not know how it works. It's more economic incentives. Like the jobs that they're getting straight out of university are to go straight to cloud and do programming stuff. Like at no point in their career are they economically incented through a job or a, you need to have this step in your background to understand the, 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 the stuff that's below water level for them. So that to me is more of a, you know, we're not requiring our software engineers to understand how things work. So they're not going to. It's kind of a fait accompli in my mind. So that's kind of how I, I, I think about that. And the other thing that I would just point out about, you know, these guys going straight to cloud and becoming experts, the worst case scenario for a commercial person is to give engineers the keys to the cloud bill. Because to be a subject matter expert in cloud, you not only need to know how to engineer it, but you need to know what you're paying for. And that to me is... I think there's a lot of folks that just kind of assume that these are fungible resources that are unlimited. And that's how startups die from an Amazon bill, right? It's no, no, no question about it. But I guess like the, fundamentally, does that mean if they're economically incented to go straight to cloud, you know, one of the things we've been trying to tackle is this kind of knowledge gap where there aren't a lot of people coming into like the critical infrastructure piece of the business as much as there are, you know, the software engineers and, you know, the app developers and all that stuff is just, there's some, you know, missing component where all of that stuff has to live in the data center. All of that stuff has to live in some room that's still leveraging the same technologies that they had back in the 2000s, you know, glass touching glass, copper touching copper and large air conditioned room with, you know, varying levels of efficiency and, and all sorts of cool things that you can do um, to, to squeeze more power out of less space, et cetera. But it's just not as sexy as some of those, you know, other elements of it. So does that economic incentive to maybe skip over? And obviously there's a difference between a software developer and someone that's working, you know, in the data center business. But is there not really that focus on, you know, the, the support resource that we need to, 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 keep the, to keep up with the pace that, you know, the, the, the digital infrastructure of our world will need to, to support? Well, I think it's interesting because I think that the, I th I'm just spitballing here. So I may, I may regret uh, saying all of this later, but. Controversy um, creates cash, Michael. Make it happen. <laughs> the, my, my view is you need more people like with a generalized business background and you need to get them interested in digital infrastructure. Because I think the software engineers are always going to software engineer. And that's a, that's a specialized different kind of, you know, career with a different kind of price point. But what we need is more people who can think in terms of business and, you know, critical thinking, because we need people who can make economic decisions. We can, you know, make business cases happen, make investment happen, make sort of, but they need to have that engineering overlay. So they understand enough about it that they're not making, you know, foolish decisions on a, on a, on a 
critical infrastructure scale. So how do we take, look, you know, engineers going to go straight to whatever specialist engineering thing they want to do, but how do we take people who are not on the engineering track and lure them into digital infrastructure and give them enough understanding of how that works, give them the table stakes as a part of their education to kind of come out with a, a business engineering degree or, you know, something like that, or create a career path where you take people with kind of a generalized liberal arts and business background and pull them into digital infrastructure slowly. Again, I think Cloudflare is relatively good at this. I don't know if other companies in the industry are relatively good at this, but can you learn this stuff? Can you learn the concepts? Can you learn network schematically? Like I, I can't tell you how a network really works getting down to the bits. I can draw a map. Can you understand the map that I draw? That, that is how you need to understand how a network works for business engineering in my point of view. Um, can you understand an architectural diagram of how a database interacts with, you know, some front end piece? If you can understand the schematic, literally just draw a line draw a box, you're probably going to be fine in this. If you can't understand that, that, then digital infrastructure is probably not for you. But if you have the ability to kind of assimilate that concept, we need to figure out how to incent more people to come in that way. And then secondarily, I think what companies like Salute do um, are great that recruit veterans to do kind of some of the hands and eyes stuff in data centers. I think that's a great program. Um, I think that's really successful at you know recruiting precision into the actual things that require precision, not like my crazy strategy stuff and disorganized shambles of a desk, but like the precision stuff, pulling the, pulling more people in that way is going to be good. But I think you need to, you need to pull more people in from, from, from an outside engineering context and you need to have enough people who have an engineering background to sort of make the push and pull work. I mean, I think, yeah, I think you have to shine the light on and you have to make sure people are aware of, of what it takes to, 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 to run our just to add to that, it's just about creating that voice and embracing what we do, right? We, we are the largest, smallest industry globally. People don't know what we do. I mean, Phil is a problem solver. I tell people I connect the world. So, you know, we, 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 we need to get the message out there, demystify technology, simplify it and, and create that level of excitement that we're connecting the world and we're connecting pieces. And if there's anything sane right now in this world with what we're living with is because of technology. Yeah, I think, I think honestly, right now there should be a great opportunity because we're all like the internet really transitioned from, I mean, it was critical infrastructure before, but nobody, you know, other than the, the full-time remote people before two years ago was like as dependent on it as we are now. Right. So mm -hmm. the, the criticality of the critical infrastructure just went up a notch. We need a different word. I think critical is not, so it doesn't say it's the way it's the word. It's like a pipe with water to your house and sewer, like all of these things. And th these are conversations that I have with, with landlords and other folks and in the service of, of Cloudflare's infrastructure expansion is don't think of this as a, the, the tenant will worry about this type stuff. This is, this is water and power and in sewer. Like this is not, this is not optional anymore. Um, yeah. and it's yeah, not we, like a la carte anymore. It needs to be a part of the fabric of everybody's, you know, environment. Yeah, so at Nomad Futurists, we refer to it as digital utility. Mm. Yeah, and I mean, absolutely. Yeah, and we live in the data era. If you pulled the plug on it, like society would collapse. Like it's not, it's not optional anymore. It's, it is exactly like all of the other things that we regard as critical utility. If it's not for five minutes, society almost collapses.
Yeah, I mean, and imagine if something like consequential went down. <laughs> Michael King from Cloudflare just said TikTok is not consequential. Take okay. that, everybody. There's 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 a there's a New York Post level of headline writing that uh, I really respect and appreciate. All right, Michael. So, you know, for uh, the younger generation, based on your experience, if you were to look back in time, the twenty years of you being in technology and the digital infrastructure, what would you tell them? What what's your message to the younger generation regarding the industry? I would try and and it, I would try and figure out first, like, how does this stuff work? Like, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of schematic sort of education you could figure out just by following the following the line, like. I get an internet connection. Where does that go? Like, how does that interact with other things? And try and figure out, and maybe with help from, you know, the communities that are open to new participants, what, what part of the infrastructure appeals to you? And I just, I came through my knowledge of the fact that data centers are, exist by, almost by accident. And here I am working on it as the main part of my career. How do you, can you self, can you, can you, do any kind of research project as a component of your education or separately that kind of gives you the excuse of learning what all the components of these things are. And honestly, what is the, what is the component, if any, that you have a, a, the greatest physical reaction to? What, what seems, what seems most interesting? I've done arguably okay in my life by following the thing that seemed most interesting. And that might be kind of a luxury sort of perspective, honestly, but that's, that's kind of how it went for me. Like, here, let me follow my instincts here about what is most interesting to me because I feel like that's where I'll be most successful. Um, where I'll put in the extra energy to understand things and where I'll be able to grind stuff out. So I guess that that would have been the mentoring I would have given myself is like, what part of all of this technology world seems interesting to you? And I probably would have challenged myself to say, I don't think you know as many parts of the tech ecosystem as you think. Like your perspective is very you have this depth of experience of things that sit in front of you, but what about everything else? And that, that it was, that was a piece of knowledge acquired by accident that I wish I had acquired earlier. Based on what you know and where you sit in your current capacity and, and traveling the world, what do you think are some of the hottest trends in the industry that everybody should be mindful of? I know it's very popular to say this at this point, but I think it's important through three emissions for data center companies and really figuring out, and this is as much to self-preservation as it is for anything else, but like we're going to be asked questions by the citizenry at large, if we're not already, in some cases we are already, about why what we do isn't a net negative for the world. And that obviously is very focused on, hey, these data centers, they take power and a lot less focused on, hey, that's because they're delivering Netflix for you. But assuming that we're focused, that we're double clicking on one part of the infrastructure chain that happens to consume a lot of energy and resources, I think it's really crucial that we track and measure and improve upon the resources that we are consuming. We've already seen in Singapore, for instance, the government just kind of, you know, pulled down the portcullis on new data center construction for reasons that are similar to that. I think that is not a pattern that any of us are eager to see repeated anywhere else. So if we don't want that to happen, we really need to make a much better show. And some of it is just literally creating the data set that shows here it is. 
and here's the metric that we want to get to in a few years. That's really important. And I think there's, you know, been some effort on group one and group two, and there's more supply chain group three tech stuff that needs to happen. I've been speaking to some folks on that front, and I'm excited to see what they can come up with for that for the data center industry. So stay tuned there. But I think that to me is as important as anything else, because if it, if left unchecked, it presents an existential threat in a um, huge number of regulatory environments with very disparate goals. And from my perspective, that, that to me is the most, the most crucial thing that, that we need to work on. And obviously, you know, Moore's law is still going right on, right? The technology is still chugging away, becoming more efficient, but also our demand profiles keep changing. You know, the, the work from home piece, the more and more video delivered over the internet piece. So I, you know, I think the, the generalized trend towards assuming that technology refresh cycles will take care of everything. I think we're keeping up so far, but the, the continued level of investment that are needed, that it's going to be needed. Plus, you know, if Zuckerberg pulls off the metaverse, what, you know, the, the implications of the bandwidth for that and infrastructure for that are pretty extreme. And unless something disruptive like quantum computing really materializes in the next 20 years, like we're going to have to service those, that demand. And we really need to have our ducks in a row to do that. So I guess that's my kind of winding, winding answer for your question of what's, what's top of mind for me in trends. Cause I'm really, I'm a little bit concerned about regulatory environment as it applies to data centers specifically and not really understanding the whole value chain of technology. So we need to. Well, think, and, I, and I think if you look at like the, uh, the governmental agencies in the U.S. are so far behind when it comes to even understanding what the data centers do, they, it's just not, I, I don't, what happened in Singapore hasn't happened here because it doesn't need to happen. I just think it hasn't happened here because, you know, we're just not, not, not evolved enough governmentally to even understand, you know, the consequences of our actions. Well, I think Singapore is a unique regulatory environment and, you know, very unique in, in a certain sense. But we have seen sort of similar skepticism in Amsterdam. I think Europe in general is more primed to, I mean, Germany basically banned nuclear power, right? Like, because they didn't want the, the environmental consequences of that. And while I, I think that was a failure on a policy level, it is an active policy. So what we don't want to get to is a place where suddenly a Germany goes, wait a minute, we don't want any more of these. That will, that will cause, I mean, and that will cause huge, huge issues for cascading issues for the countries around it and eventually for the entire internet. And we just don't want that to continue to be a thing. So let's, let's get our story in order and start telling it. Michael, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. Really enjoyed uh, getting to know you and everything that you've been doing. Any message for our listeners? I would just say, you know, the best thing that happened to me was I found people who were willing to take a chance on me and, and kind of advise me about how to get into this, how to get into this space. So, you know, obviously internet infrastructure is kind of a niche thing, but if you're interested in getting into it and need some advice, like I'm sure all the three of us are open ears for new new entrants into the field so don't hesitate to reach out outstanding well thank you again michael for your time great having you thanks appreciate it guys this has been great nothing lasts forever markets will come back currencies will rebound businesses will go on and we'll all move on that could happen next week next month or next year 
I'm confident that those who prepare rather than panic will come out of this stronger. Thank you for joining us. This has been brought to you by Nomad Futurist. Check us online at nomadfuturist.com.